liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe As always, if you want to support my work, go over to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a supporting member. I do AMAs over there where you get to come in on stream with me, uh, ask me questions. It's really a lot of fun. We just did another one last week. It went great. Also, you can go to toplobster.com if you want to pick up Liberty Lockdown shirts. I'm not wearing one right now, but uh, Top Lobster puts out the best merch in the game. So toplobster.com to check that out. Uh, also, at the end of this episode, there's going to be <clears throat> my regular scheduled interview with judge andrew napolitano and we cover a lot of things including the potential for the climate emergency what biden can do with the executive orders what he can't do uh, we cover a lot of a lot of different things including the update on uvalde which is insane and tragic and pathetic and damning against police so you'll enjoy that uh, before i get into tonight's episode let's thank our sponsor i will be in orlando like 10 days from now with Dave Smith and everybody. It's going to be it's going to be incredible. So today's episode is sponsored by Young Americans for Liberty. YAL is the most effect, effective and active pro-liberty youth organization advancing liberty on the campus and in American electoral politics. Their four-step mission is to identify, educate, train, and mobilize youth activists to make liberty win. They started in 2009 from the Students for Ron Paul campaign. That's our guy, Ron Paul. This summer, I will be speaking at Yale's Revolution 2022 Revolution 2022 is the largest liberty event of the year hosted by our friends at Young Americans for Liberty. There will be over 1,000 liberty warriors at this event with speakers including Kennedy, who I hung out with last week. How cool. Uh, Zuby, who I also hung out with last week. How cool. Rand Paul, who was there, but I didn't talk to him. Uh, Bruce Fenn, Glenn Jacobs, Brandon Herrera, Spike Cohen, my guy, Ron Paul, Dave Smith, my guy times two, and me. And many, many more, including Reed Coverdale. Uh, who else? Some Lions Liberty Cats. It's going to be awesome. Mark Claire, you know, the whole squad. Uh, I went last year and it was a great time. And I was able to meet hundreds of these incredible students that are pushing liberty in ways that I just makes my heart fill whole. So if you are a student or if you're just interested, make sure you go over to yaliberty.org forward slash revolution to apply to see if you can make it out there. It is August 4th through 6th in Orlando, Florida. Do not miss it. It's going to be an amazing time. Let's get into tonight's episode, huh? So as you guys are no doubt aware, the uh, Biden administration has been vocally demanding that the price of fuel go down because that's a normal free market mechanism to have the president of the United States demand that a price be reduced. Uh, yeah, and we, we exist under a capitalist model. Sure we do. Anyways, let's get into an interview that I thought was extraordinarily enlightening on the ground in workplaces all across keep hearing that word fair and you and i've had this conversation before it sometimes makes it sound like something nefarious is happening in certain places the president over the weekend said this my message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple this is a time of war and global peril bring down the price you are charging at the pumps reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now jeff bezos came out and tweeted the following i'm sure you read it Inflation is far too important a problem for the White House to keep making statements like this. It's either straight ahead misdirection or a deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics. I'm not going to accuse you of the latter. I want to talk about the former. Where's that messaging coming from? 
The president has made clear that his number one goal is delivering for the American people. We are in a time of crisis. We are in a this is Heather Boucher, the Council of Economic Advisor member. Uh, so I guess she works for the Biden administration in some fashion, and <laughs> she completely dodges the question blatantly. But this, for once, you have a reporter who actually calls her out on it, which is nice. Time of war where, where the president and our allies, we are supporting the Ukrainian people. Congress is engaged in this effort, both sides of the aisle, to say this is an important priority. And one of the consequences is this high price of oil because of global trends. You can and, answer his important and, question. And, everyone, Heather, everyone in the nation wants to know the answer to the question Mr. Farrell just asked you, which is who is advising the president on shutting shockingly naive price theory over a gallon of gas. So the president is not shockingly naive, and we are in this moment of global crisis in terms of energy, and he is using the tools at his disposal, disposal to make sure that the prices that people pay at the pump are fair. So what we know in oil prices is that the prices can, um, uh, they can rise very quickly. It can take a long time for those prices to recalibrate and to come back down, and he's saying do that faster. You have the capacity to do so. You're making profits. But the important thing is that he's using the tools at his disposal, given this very Heather, challenging is this, situation. Is this central planning now? Is that what this has come to? How is that central planning? Are we going to sit here and decide what... How is it central planning? Having the president of the United States demand that the price of one of the most important input goods is reduced. Just at the snap of a finger. How is that central planning? <laughs> what an absurd question what's fair, what's not fair, and then go on Twitter and say, this is unfair, bring your prices down. But it's markets or is it not markets? Is it capitalism or is it central planning? Where's this White House going? One of the things that the president has prioritized is understanding the way the concentration across markets has affected the American people and is yeah. affecting markets. We know when there are very few players, this is Econ 101. On the so apparently their allegation is that it's a monopoly, in which case you do have powers to break up monopolies. So are you saying that the oil industry is a monopoly? Because if so, well, then you could bring, you know, antitrust violations or something like that. But you're not saying that. Instead, you're just demanding that the price go down. Just go down, price. Uh, I mean, this is, this is concerning. It's concerning to live in a country where you have, you know, a sitting president and his entire uh, team basically browbeating allegedly private businesses. I mean, either they are or they aren't uh, to reduce the price of the goods that they're selling. I mean, if it's a competitive marketplace, which it ought to be, I don't know if it truly is. It ought to be, obviously. Well, then competition should bring the price down, right? So, I mean, the allegation is that they're colluding to keep the price elevated. That's what they're saying. Uh, they may not make it explicit, but that's the only explanation because if it's truly a competitive marketplace, the competition should force them to compete and bring the price down to a level at which they will win out market share, right? So it's either that or it's that you're saying this is a monopoly and that they are you know, using anti-competitive practices in which case you have mechanisms to pursue them, but you're not doing that. So they're kind of in this like, gray area where they're just demanding that the price go down total nonsense and uh that's how you get shortages just so you know you have an entire industry that has been lambasted by the i mean even on the campaign campaign trail he was saying we are going to get off of fossil fuels and then a year later he's saying why aren't you producing more oil and gas oh i don't know why why aren't they it's a total mystery
sitting president of the United States who said that he was going to get us off oil and gas within his presidency. I can't imagine why they're not drilling fresh new oil wells, which take you know years to come online once you include the lease and the drill and the production and the refining and and distribution. Yeah, it's a total mystery. I can't understand it. And we're back with my favorite congressman and probably yours, Mr. Thomas Massey of Kentucky. He is skewering the people that are uh, are trying to ban assault weapons. Check this out. I will. I will here in a little bit. I need. I've got some other points I need to make. So the other side of the aisle says this bill will ban weapons of war. Really? Will it? Let's look at the exempted list. You guys might want to get out the bill and check this. It exempts the M1 Garand. I'm going to read you. So you can still, after this bill passes, you can own an actual weapon of war. What they're calling weapons of war are not weapons of war. They're, they're sporting rifles, but what they're not banning are the actual weapons of war. I just want to point out real quick how unbelievably gleeful <laughs> Thomas Massey is to be doing this to them. <laughs> he, is, he is salivating at tearing these people apart, which I really appreciate. The M1 Garand is not banned by this bill. And in a letter to General Campbell from General Patton, General Patton says, in my opinion, the M1 rifle is the greatest battle implement ever devised. Guess what? Not banned in this bill. <laughs> the actual weapon of war. Come on, get your sign upright. That's what ridiculous. What else is it banned? Fire team. Hire me, Thomas. Bill. The quintessential... Chinese army <laughs> weapon of war. The SKS is not banned by your bill. It's very charitable to allow people to own this piece of Cold War history. Uh, here's the Chinese army practicing drills with one of the weapons they're most proudest of, most proud of, which is the SKS. Not banned in this bill. An actual weapon of war. The bill does ban sporting firearms, though. What do we have here? Well, the gun they're primarily going after in this bill is the AR-type firearm, which stands for Armalite, not assault rifle. It shoots this cartridge, 223. It was designed so that it was lighter weight. And it, frankly, it's not even suitable. I mean, some people use it to deer hunt, but it's not the preferred caliber for deer hunting. This is the, the uh, cartridge that is used by the M1 Grand which is not banned by this bill. It's many times, many times more powerful. Let's, let's talk about another weapon of war. Dude, your team has to get these upright. Thomas, what are you doing, man? What do we have here? This is Iwo Jima. This is the, the M1 carbine. Also not banned by this bill. <laughs> A technical, <laughs> literal weapon of war. Yes, they're over there whispering to themselves, oh my gosh, why didn't we ban that? Why didn't we think to ban that? Because you're not banning weapons of war. <laughs> you're banning the most commonly sold sporting rifle in the United States right now. You're not banning weapons of war. If you were, if you were serious about it, you would ban the quintessential Chinese weapon of war. You would ban the rifle that Patton, General Patton, Described as the, as the finest battle implement ever devised. <laughs> you would ban it, but you're not. And you would ban the, the M1 carbine that was used to take Iwo Jima, but you're not. 
You're not banning weapons of war. You're banning firearms that law-abiding people who are just exercising their Second Amendment rights go out and, and buy and purchase every day and use to defend their families. Would the gentleman now yield? And, and with that, I yield back. Would the gentleman yield? I'll, I'll yield to the chairman, and I would love it if Thank he could you could tell I, us why he didn't ban weapons of war and a bill that's supposed uh, to I just want to. I just want to point out that whatever the uh, weaknesses of the 90, 1994 bill, um, gun deaths went down by 25% promptly, and when the bill was allowed to lapse, they went right back up. It's, and, and if I may respond to that, Mr. Chairman, uh, if they went down, which they probably did because crime overall went down during that period, it wasn't because the number of assault rifles went down. They actually went up from 94 to 2004. Oof. Got him. God, I love Thomas Massey. Uh, and he's right. And also, I mean, it's obvious that we were in a healthier economic time, which is when you usually see gun deaths and crime statistics drop. So your gun ban doesn't do anything. That is a pure correlation versus causation argument. And you failed at it. But Thomas Massey did not fail. He crucified these MFers, and I could not be more appreciative of it. It's just so obvious. I mean, it, I don't even need to tell you guys this, but it's just transparently, blatantly obvious that they are attempting to take the most popular means of self-defense away from all of us and criminalize us if we possess it. That's the goal of this bill. Let's not beat around the bush. Let's just be real direct about it. They don't want you to be able to defend yourself in any effective fashion. And the AR-15 is the most popular gun for a reason. It is very good at home defense and at personal defense. That's all there is to it. Oh, and also, it happens to be a weapon that you might actually be able to defend yourself if the government were to ever come for you. And that is really the purpose of the Second Amendment. Let's not bullshit ourselves. It's not about hunting deer. It's about Fed posting, Fed post. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. And if you think I'm overstating it, let's hear from Mr. Nadler as to why they're doing it. I would like to yield on the other side who would dispute that this bill bans weapons that are in common use in the United States today. Would anyone on the other side dispute that this bill would ban weapons that are in common use in the United States today. Would the gentleman yield? I would, to, 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 for an answer to that question. Yeah, that's the point of the bill. So, so you mean you? So to clarify, Mr. Chairman, you're saying it is? <laughs> he just answers it flatly. He's like, "Are you attempting to ban weapons that are commonly used in America?" No, that's the point of the bill. Boom, there you have it. The point of the bill to ban weapons that are in common use in the United States today. Yes, the problem is with the gentleman. <laughs> you got to appreciate the boldness of it. I mean, at least they're telling the truth finally. Uh, let's shift over to our homie Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Buttigieg. Uh, he is getting dragged this week, rightfully, since he's like the Secretary of Transportation or whatever his gay title is. Um, but he, <laughs> he, he can't, he can't get. He can't hide the pathological narcissism and totalitarian instincts that exist within the modern Democratic Party. And I love him for it. Thank you so much, Pete, 
for being incapable of hiding your disdain for the common American man. I really, really appreciate it. Let's see what he has to say. Quick clip. I'm still astonished. Folks, uh, and, and I, I felt this uh, satisfying in Congress yesterday. Um, some folks seem to really uh, struggle to let go of the status quo. I'm still. Uh, sorry, it's only a 10 second clip, so I'll play it for you again. But he's just he's just astonished that so many of us idiot peons refuse to relinquish our gas guzzling cars. That's what he's saying. Let's do it again. Still astonished that, that some folks, uh, and, and I, I felt this, I was testifying in Congress yesterday, um, some folks seem to really uh, struggle to let go of the status quo. I'm yeah, we do. Uh, you know why? Because we're free people and we get to decide when we want to migrate to a new technology. And when that technology is cost effective, we'll do it of our own accord. You fucking asshole. And you will not starve us in the meantime. How about that? What a novel idea. Piece of shit. This is unrelated. This has to do with uh, Joe Biden's fitness for office, but I thought it was uh, a telling back and forth between a congressman and uh, what was his name? Congressman Troy Nels, who I probably don't like, but I, you got to appreciate the humor of this. It's pretty funny. Well, just a few weeks ago, this is how President Biden described America in one word. Could you please tell me what that word means? It's this one right here. Mm -hmm. Could you even say the word? Congressman, I'm not in the habit of trying to read transcriptions. Or... <laughs> For those that can't, can't remember, this, this is when Biden was asked to, or he didn't, wasn't asked, just in a speech, he tried to define America as a single word. And they, they do. Excuse me. <laughs> and they hold it up uh, on the house floor. <laughs> I love, I love this timeline. It is so fun. I bring this up Moments to you, sir. I bring this up to you on television. because you yourself questioned Donald Trump's mental state of mind in September of 2019 when you stated to CNN, "I quote: If our presidency is not in good shape, then our country is not in good shape." And Mr. Secretary, I could not agree with you more. I'm going to repeat what your quote is. If our presidency is not in good shape, then our country is not in good shape. Inflation's at 9.1%. Gas prices are through the roof. Our adversaries are exploiting our weaknesses across the globe. And our southern border is non-existent. This administration puts the American people last. The left and the dishonest media, which in my humble opinion is the greatest threat to this country, the dishonest media, began questioning President Trump's mental state back in February of 2017, a month into his presidency. We now have President Biden in office for 18 months, and just recently, we now see the mainstream media questioning President Biden's mental state, and for good reason. Sadly, he shakes hands with ghosts and imaginary people. <laughs> He falls off bicycles. <laughs> Even at the White House Easter celebration, the Easter Bunny had to guide him back into his safe place. <laughs> They're holding up photos of all of this. It's so funny. You guys got to check it out. If you're watching this, then you're seeing it. But man, it's great. Cue cards that say sit here or end of speech, which he actually states. That is if he stays awake. <laughs> got him. He follows up with this. So my question for you is, sir, 
Have you spoken with any other cabinet members about implementing the 25th Amendment on President Biden? First of all, I'm glad to have a president who can ride a bicycle. Ooh. And <laughs> I will look beyond the, the insulting nature of that question and make clear to you that the president have of the United States. Have you spoken to any other cabinet not. members about implementing the 25th Amendment on President Biden? The, of course please not. Please allow the witness. You to know have you emailed, this is my time, States. have you emailed any members with the, the executive States. branch about the president's health or president decline, the United States including text messages from your private or phone. Boss as I have I ever figured had the pleasure this. of working with. What about a political appointees at USDOT? Have you spoken about- Gentleman's time has expired. I couldn't hear the question. There you have it. <clears throat> well, I think that uh, if anything that demonstrates that Buttigieg and everybody else that hasn't considered the 25th Amendment for Biden should probably be impeached themselves or whatever the process is for removing them from, from power. Uh, if you are, if you have a boss of that caliber, <laughs> that's a very nice way to put it, uh, of that deteriorating state, and you have not at any point considered perhaps implementing some mechanism for getting him out of power, <laughs> you don't care about the American people because there's no way you can work with him day to day and not conclude that he is a clear and present danger to all of our security, given the fact that he allegedly, and I tend to believe that it's probably true, has access and, according to Scott Horton, unilateral control over the nuclear football. Uh, horrifying. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by my friend, Mikel Thorup. He is the host and everything behind Expat Money Show, and they are throwing a summit in a, just not long from now, a couple months. Uh, Expat Money Summit is your spot if you want to figure out on how to become an expat yourself. An expat is just someone that gives up their citizenship and goes and finds freedom elsewhere in the world. Not a bad idea to at least have that as an option. This guy is the shortcut to doing so. If you want to attend that summit, trust me, you want to attend it because the legend Ron Paul is going to be there. They are an upcoming online summit, so you don't actually have to be there. Uh, but go to expatmoney.com. They will have over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. It's free to attend. Go to expatmoneysummit.com. Reclaim your freedom from chaos and uncertainty. Topics will include how to secure your own plan B safe haven, how to use foreign currencies, offshore banking, and decentralized finance to safeguard your money, how to legally reduce your tax burden, how and where to safely store gold, silver, and other precious metals, where the best countries are in the world to find freedom for yourself and your family, how you can get a second passport to travel the globe without restrictions, and get in and out of different countries' borders, Lastly, you will learn about a libertarian island haven, private cities, communities on the ocean, and food and energy independent towns in Latin America. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com. This is your way to fight back against what is happening in the world. Stand up, protect yourself, and find out how to secure your new life abroad. Register for free over at expatmoneysummit.com. Don't miss it. Ron Paul will be there. expatmoneysummit.com. Quick update for you on the CBDC. Let me zoom in for those that are watching so you can read along with me. Uh, the Office of Financial Research, the OFR, is the independent bureau within the United States Department of the Treasury, which was formed in response to the financial crisis of 2007-2008, probably implemented through Dodd-Frank, if I had to guess, and the subsequent Great Recession that ensued. The OFR is responsible for collecting financial data and making recommendations to the Treasury's Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, uh, based on that data who then responds to emerging risks to the stability of the United States financial system. This is the same department who for the last two years oversaw one of the largest transfers of wealth in the history of the world, and they approved every bit of it. Their influence in the global economy cannot be understated, which is why the OFR's recent white paper is particularly troublesome. On July 11, 2022, that is about 10 days ago, the OFR published a working paper advocating for a central bank digital currency. 
In their abstract, the authors claim that a CBDC will counter against bank runs by monitoring the flow of funds into CBDC, which allows policymakers to identify and resolve weak banks sooner, which also decreases depositors' incentives to run. Sure it does. Uh, while this may seem like a good way to prevent a bank run, the fact that a bank run is happening at all means that the proverbial shit <laughs> is hitting the fan. The fact that the OFR is preparing for one is unsettling enough, but the fact that their answer is a CBDC should make everyone start to pay attention. I could not agree more. Why are they talking about bank runs? Ask yourself that. And ask yourself why, when we're not even being warned of any insolvency issues within the banking system, that they are warning about bank runs and saying that the best mechanism for sol solving that in advance would be a CBDC. Hmm, a little concerning. By the way, this article is from thefreethoughtproject.com if you guys want to check it out. Remember in February when Canada's Prime Minister began freezing the bank accounts of protesters who stood against tyrannical mandates and arresting them? Not only did they go after the protesters, but the government went after the bank accounts of those who provided monetary support in the form of donations as well. Yes, they did. For practicing their free speech, Canadians were persecuted and driven into financial ruin by the government who claims to protect them. This was all carried out with zero due process, without any democratic input at all, and with zero resistance from the banks. Who later apologized? Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> you, you took my money and uh, you know, labeled me a terrorist and an extremist, but uh, appreciate the apology. Things about the ease with which this was done using the Canadian dollar and real money inside real banks, and then consider the implications had the Canadians already adopted the federated digital ID system. Had they, they'd be fucked, let's be honest. Uh, with the digital asset controlled by the central bank and the state. Sounds like a conspiracy theory, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it's not, and it will be here before you know it. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Neil Parmenter, the president and CEO of the Canadian Banksters Association. <laughs> oh, bank I said banksters. They didn't say that. Bankers Association. Explain how this system, supported by the World Economic Forum. Oh, there's our buddies. World Economic Forum, all deep in the pie, will work. Plastic credit cards, ID cards, and cash are a thing of the past. And the Great Reset, your entire financial portfolio will be controlled by the central bank and your assets relegated to a central bank digital currency that can be turned off in a split second by the tyrannical regime you dare to criticize. And the quote goes on to say, Canada's banks are perfectly situated to help lead the creation of a federated digital ID system between government and the private sector. The World Economic Forum agrees. That is Neil Parmenter, president and CEO of the Canadian Bankers Association. So we can continue to pretend that this is some bonkers conspiracy theory that'll never happen or we can just admit that it's real it's coming and only you can stop it i'd rather do that speaking of weird and disturbing things we have my homie zuby who tweeted out from the uk government's website this is super weird and uh this was he was actually quote tweeting james melville and in it it's the gov.uk so very very official says you can apply for a lump sum payment to leave or retire from farming Oh, okay. It says, check if you're eligible for lump sum exit scheme, what you need to do and how to apply. And this was published in April of 2022. So you might want to consider that this is not an accident, that we're having food shortages because they believe, and they do, and I think many of them sincerely do, that the production of food which is necessary to sustain life on earth, as I've repeatedly told you, and as you're no doubt aware, uh, they think that that is going to kill us all. Yeah. The production of food necessary to sustain life is going to kill us all. Do I need to point out how insane that statement is? When it's like on its face, you're just basically declaring, we're going to kill people because we think that more people will die in the future. And that's the best interpretation you can have for it. 
Because otherwise, there's no logical explanation other than great reset, totalitarian takeover, that whole thing. Uh, which you know we can go there, but let's let's keep it a little bit reasonable today, huh? And we're back with our friends over at the World Economic Forum. We have Mariana Mazzucato, the professor of economics for the University College of London. Big, big old title. Here we go. We talk about the role of government as fixing market failures or de-risking the cool risk takers in places like Silicon Valley. Then, of course, if you're a young, bright graduate, would you rather be a risk taker or a de-risker? Of course, it's more exciting to be a risk taker. What the fuck is she even talking about? I love sorry, this pause is too funny. Uh, I just love that, like, you can just sense, like, you you pluck these people out of HR and you put them in, like, the most important governmental roles in the world or professorial roles. Like, are you a risk taker or a de-risker? They're just making up, you know, phrases as they go along. So my work has been about thinking out of the box, thinking about the state as an investor first resort, not a lender of last resort. Thinking about the state as an investor of first resort. Where have I heard that before? I don't know. Early 1900s Russia, mid 1900s China. It's communism. It's communism is what it is. Jesus Christ. As a sharer in risk taking, not just a de-risker and not just a fixer of market failures, but a co-shaper and co-creator of value. And I <laughs> Let's hear that again. That is so bonkers. And not just a fixer of market failures, but a co-shaper and co-creator of value. A co-shaper and co-creator of value. So now we're in, I don't know, whatever decade that was in the 1900s, uh, Italy under <laughs> Benito Mussolini. I mean, now they're just overtly describing fascism. A co-shaper and co-creator of value. <laughs> what a fun academic way to talk about fascism. Value. And I think if that narrative was more mainstreamed, it would definitely be sexier to work in government. <laughs> Look at her smile. So gleeful. I think if we were to make that language more mainstream, it would be more sexy to work within the fascist government that I salivate for. She's about to come. And places like Singapore have done that also by properly uh, paying their civil servants. We often think that civil servants are paid too much. It's simply not true. Mariana Mazzucato is a professor at University College London and the author of books, The Entrepreneurial State and Mission Economy. She is also co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on a new economic agenda for recovery. Mazzucato says we need a radical new economic model in which we reimagine the state as an innovative investor. One of the things I've focused on in my work that I've tried to bring to the WEF community is rethinking the state, not as just a market fixer, which by definition means it will always be too little, too late, always reacting to a crisis, the climate crisis, the financial crisis, the health crisis, but much more to, towards a market co-shaper and a market co-creator. What's the difference between a co-shaper and a co-creator? Like, and why does she say WEF? Is that is that really what they do with the acronym? Oh my God, I have to change my entire lexicon. I, I've been saying WEF this whole time. You guys just WEF it? All right. Uh, they go on to say governments have all kinds of tools at their disposal. She says they can use these to reshape their economies. How can they so overtly describe fascism and no one points it out? Governments have lots of tools at their disposals to reimagine the economy. Okay, you're either talking about Marxism or you're talking about fascism. You're talking about the state actually taking control. Or you're talking about them, uh, you know, working in tandem with big business I, to, you know, 
suppressed dissidents. It's one or the other. Go on to say, by attaching the right conditions to the investments they make. So, for example, using outcomes-oriented procurement, using all the different levers that government has, procurement, grants, loans, bailouts, COVID-19 recovery uh, schemes, in order to really tilt the playing field to force... I love that she calls the COVID-19 bailouts a scheme. <laughs> ...a different type of public-private partnership with strong conditionalities attached, so we don't just give out you know, subsidies and guarantees just to stay alive. A public-private partnership. All of this is just newspeak for fascism. It is. It's so obvious. And they just do it with this big-ass smile. It's wild. Governments can use these levers to build the economy we need rather than one shaped purely by financial interest. God forbid. We currently live in an ultra-financialized form of capitalism where a very large chunk of global finance actually goes back to... Back to finance. That's what she says. This is a clip straight from the World Economic Forum. You know, I'm not making them make this stuff. They are doing it on their own. They are advertising <clears throat> their own desires for fascism or communism or whatever you want to call it, communal fascism, global fascism, whatever, whatever label you want to put on it. <clears throat> it is completely counter to your interests. I promise you that. And don't let their smiles and their you know academic credentials fool you. These people have been, I think they've been deceived, honestly. I think they have been tricked into believing in technocratic capabilities that they are so much smart that smart or smarter, <laughs> not a good way to put it, I sound dumb now, uh, than everybody else on the planet. And, and they're just repackaging a bunch of dead ideas and ideas which are dead because they are catastrophic in their implementation. Catafuckingstrophic. But they're repackaging it in Newspeak to try and make it palatable. And by some unbelievable fuckitude, they have made this palatable to many, many college graduates and the intellectual elite that run things in this world. I don't know how they pulled it off. I really don't. I mean, anybody that knows anything about history has to know that communism and fascism are not good things. If I recall, in 2020, there was a few riots. Maybe you remember them where people were marching against fascism. Well, simultaneously, the World Economic Forum, in all its glory, is espousing overt fascism 24-7, and they are having meetings with the biggest businesses on Earth, where they then turn around and talk about fascism also, and how great they're doing at it. And yet, there is no congealing, there is no populist... Uh, you know, combination of political ideologies that come together and say, hey, differences aside, bro, you little skinny Antifa-looking douche, we both don't like fascism, so maybe, maybe that's our, maybe that's the enemy? I don't know. I'm just saying. They've been going non-effing stop on the climate change stuff this week. I'm sure most of you are aware. And this one totally blew my mind to the point that I thought I had had an aneurysm while listening to it. Check this out. This is John Kirby, former, uh, I think he was DOD. No, he was State Department. So this guy is literally responsible for sowing much of the discord within the Middle East and listen to what he has to say. Emissions, because uh, climate change uh, creates uh, instability, which creates insecurity in some places, and you can end up, the, the, the fighting in Syria uh, started really as a result of a drought. Um, 
did it? <laughs> is that is that really why? It wasn't Al Qaeda and ISIS that we funded and armed. Oh man, come on, man! <laughs> Climate change is the reason they're fighting in Syria. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's not a proxy war between us and Russia and Iran. Mm -mm, no way. And so there's uh, there's a it, it can actually drive military missions and 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 force the military to become involved in places and at times uh, where they wouldn't have had had to otherwise. They're literally saying that climate change is the reason that our military is over in the Middle East. I can't, I can't handle it. I can't fucking handle it, man. Like, how dumb do they think we are? You've been in the Middle East my entire fucking life, man. Climate change? That's the reason you've been there? You kidding? Could you laugh? Just, like, give me, like, a fucking wink at the end of that bullshit. I know you don't believe it. I know John fucking Kirby you know, State Department doesn't mean that. There's no possible way he believes that. I believe it when some like media talking head or some professor at the University of London says some nonsense like that. I do not believe it when there's a guy in the State Department that has overseen some of the overthrows of governments in the Middle East. I don't believe that he believes that. You're a fucking liar, John Kirby. And we're back with the World Economic Forum and we have Jane Goodall, the gorilla whisperer, here to tell us about uh, eugenics. We cannot hide away from human population growth because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. Yeah, none of these problems would exist if the uh, global population was what it was 500 years ago. Thanks so much, Jane. Uh, what about the 7 billion people that live today that didn't live back then? Because I believe we're approaching 8 billion population count, and I know it was less than a billion 500 years ago. So throw them all in a blender? I mean, what are you calling for here? When I say that this is an anti-human death cult, I'm not being hyperbolic. In fact, I, I might be understating it. The way they talk about it so flippantly, too, it's exhausting. It's exhausting that they could actually feel okay talking like that. They go, oh, yeah, I mean, we're dealing with a lot of problems. Like, if I had a problem with the current state of our world, and I was like, you know, before slavery, before we brought all those Africans over here, <laughs> you know, you'd be like, oh, so you're insinuating that you don't want the black people here. Well, it's the same thing Jane Goodall's doing, right? She's saying, I don't want the 7 billion people that are now here, here. You'd be like, this is evil. This is an evil thing to say. And I love, I love the black people that came here because of slavery. I wish it wasn't because of slavery. Uh, but point being, this is a really fucked up worldview, man. It's a, really, it's a really messed up way to look at your fellow man and be like, all these problems that we're dealing with is because there's too many of you. Well, what about you, the person saying it? Could, could you reduce the problem by one, maybe? Eh? Could you stop trying to lobby and legislate in a fashion that makes me die? Because seems a little unfair. If you think the world's overpopulated, do something about it for yourself. Stop trying to make me die. Right? Come on. They have so lost the plot that they're actually talking about how the warm weather amounts to a climate crisis. Need I remind you, it is late July. It's dead-ass center of summer, bro. It's supposed to be hot right now. The fuck is wrong with you? 
Let's hear from Jean-Pierre. Green Jean-Pierre. No relation to Jean-Claude. So we are closely <laughs> monitoring extreme heat conditions uh, impacting much of Europe, as well as the extreme heat impacting the more than 100 million Americans who are struggling with extreme heat conditions here at home just this week alone. The impacts of extreme weather are intensifying across the globe, including here in the United States. No one is immune from climate change. It's why the president has been rallying the world to take the decisive action needed in this decade to tackle the climate change, uh, the climate crisis. It's also why the president is committed to taking aggressive action to tackle climate change and made clear if the Senate won't act, he will. In fact, as many, you, as many of you have seen already today, the president will travel to Somerset, Massachusetts tomorrow. While there, he will visit the future site of manufacturing plant located at a former coal-fired power plant that will produce uh, transmission cables for Massachusetts' booming offshore wind industry. The president will underscore the historic clean energy investments his bipartisan infrastructure law will make. I just want to be real clear. If there was a booming wind industry, you wouldn't need oil and gas. We wouldn't have shortages right now because it would it would be booming. So there'd be all the capital in the world flowing to it. There would be. But the reason it's booming, but it's not actually producing what we need is because you're subsidizing it. And as long as you're subsidizing the replacement for oil and gas, you are bankrupting the American people and you're creating shortages simultaneously. And you're not fooling fucking anybody. Ake in Massachusetts and announce additional actions he will take to tackle the climate crisis and secure a clean energy future. The president ran on fighting the unprecedented economic and national security threat of climate change. And he has, take, he has been taking decisive action to do so since taking office. Tomorrow's action will be a continued. There you go. They, they deny that he's prevented drilling but he's been taking decisive action since he took office, which is exactly what myself and everybody else that's not asleep says. You guys have bragged about the fact that you have removed much of the production that we have of oil and gas in this country, or at least you've hindered it terribly. So when we point that out, when you go, oh, there's shortages, now you're over there you know, sucking some prince's dick in Saudi Arabia because we don't have enough oil and gas. Well, why is that? It's because of your own fucking executive orders on your first day in office, bruh. How's that dictates now, huh? You piece of shit, man. All these people, they're all scum of the fucking earth. The fact that they can just sit up there and lie through their teeth and go, what? it's the oil and gas company's fault for not drilling. You told them not to. You said you were going to be fucking doing everything in your power to break them. And now you want them to... Well, they're making a profit, so they should reduce their price. If they are making a profit and they don't want to reduce their price, it's probably because they know the fucking the gig is up. That five years from now, they're going to be toast. And so will we. Our fate is tied to the production and delivery of oil and gas. Don't get it twisted. You die without it. We all die without it. Maybe not 20 years from now, but if it happened tomorrow, we die. That's a fact. So. Maybe tell them no. When they when they try to give you platitudes about saving the world and reducing carbon emissions, maybe your response ought to be, uh, fuck you. 
I want to eat, bro. <laughs> Sorry to be so broish about this, but like, no, I don't care about carbon emissions more than I do about feeding my children. It's a pretty reasonable position to take. And somehow they have duped the American people into accepting this bullshit narrative so much so that they'll allow their kids to suffer and themselves to suffer. And they don't even know it. But all you have to do is stop letting the guilt trips work. Stop, let the, stop letting the fear-mongering work when it comes to this carbon boogeyman. It's very, it's very simple. Just say no. Nancy Reagan. Speaking of World Economic Forum, scumbags and affiliates, we've got the homie George Soros talking about who over in Ukraine might be responsible for uh, his involvement and everything that's been going on over there. They, they refuse to leave and they are uh, uh, leading civil society. Uh, I also want to mention that uh, there is one person who was very deeply involved in Ukraine, and that's Biden. In fact, I got to know him uh, in, with, with regard to Ukraine. George Soros got to know Joe Biden in regard to Ukraine. I know his evil accent probably makes it hard to understand, but that's what he said explicitly. I want to thank the one guy most involved in Ukraine, and that's Joe Biden, and that's how I know him. Holy shit. He had a lot more patience than I had in, in uh, trying to convert Poroshenko into a democratic leader. He said, I have a lot more patience, or he had a lot more patience than I have for trying to uh, commit Poroshenko or convert Poroshenko, which is the former president over there in Ukraine, uh, into a democratic leader, which if you know anything about the way they talk about dem democracy, you know that has nothing to do with democracy. I fed up with him and I told him so. But actually, uh, 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 Biden keep, kept on uh, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to convert Poroshenko in, into a Democrat. <laughs> Every time I hear that dude talk, I'm just like, I get the willies. <laughs> that dude is so scary. <laughs> he is really concerning. Like, he's so old. Go away, dude. Yeesh. Uh, so, yeah, Joe Biden, number one contact in Ukraine for George Soros. From his own mouth, folks. I ain't making it up. Oh, I missed one quick, great clip from... Uh, Buttigieg. Here we go. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. <laughs> they don't hide anything anymore. They just tell you exactly how it is. Of course. The more pain there is because of the higher price of gas, the more benefit there is for the people that can uh, access electric vehicles. Just telling you to your face, it is intentional. They are trying to increase the price of gas so that you will start to utilize electric-powered everything. As if electric, as if electricity is this, you know, completely pure and non-polluting, brand new innovation, right? 
as if it doesn't oftentimes re require coal for production. It's so frustrating. To prove my point about what the oil and gas companies are saying in regards to this pushback and these demands to reduce their prices, just a couple highlights. This is a tweet from Shy Girl, but it's to the point. Uh, she said, or it says, uh, and this is underlined, I'm just going to read the highlights, uh, but this is from actual oil and gas firms. It says, government animosity towards our industry makes us reluctant to pursue new projects. No shit. The real energy crisis isn't even here yet. I agree. The current administration in Washington declared war on fossil fuels before going into office, and they have continued that war to this day. Yes, obviously. Mixed messages from politicians remain unhelpful to longer-term projects and commitments. Of course, because if you're going to make a long-term investment decision, you have to have some sort of clarity on the risk that you're going to encounter over the duration of that investment. They have none because it, you could, I mean, they could executive order ban oil and gas tomorrow. Who the fuck knows what they're going to do? So why would you, you know, put billions of dollars into a drilling project when you may not be able to sell it into the market? Pretty obvious question, right? Last note, I hope this industry can weather the outrageous current assaults and the tidal wave of more of them to come from the administration. Many companies are planning an exit of their business, okay? So yeah, this is not going to be some temporary shift. You are, you are permanently altering the production of the most important resource for all of us to survive. I mean, food is obviously the most important, but Oil and gas goes into the production of food too. I know it, it's hard to believe, but it does. So you don't have oil and gas, you probably don't have enough food, then you get riots, then you get revolutions. Is that what you guys want? I'd really rather not. Personally, no idea if it's true. But they, <laughs> this is from a, a substack from Chris, Christopher Falcon, says, there are coincidences in, coincidences in nature and in life, but sometimes the stars align a little too perfectly for the skeptical mind. In 2004, the Chinese con uh, contacted the French company BioMoreau, owned by Alain Moreau, who is a personal friend of now dictator Xi Jinping, to design a level four bio facility in Wuhan, China, as the Chinese had limited experience in designing a level four facility. This facility would take a full 10 years to come to fruition. But during that time, the now CEO of Moderna, let me repeat that, the now CEO of Moderna was formerly the CEO of BioMoreau from 2007 to 2011 through which time he overseen the design of the now infamous Wuhan lab. It was revealed in August of 2021 that the Wuhan lab had serious ventilation issues as described in the House Foreign Affairs Committee Origins of COVID report. In September of 2019, the WIV, that's the Wuhan Institute of Virology, took its virus database off the internet not long after the WIV had a con contract competition to renovate its air conditioning ventilation system. The contract ended up being for a total of $606 million, evidence of which the Chinese Ministry of Finance later pulled, according to WAPO journalist Josh Rogan. The WIV Level 4 Laboratory was inaugurated on January. Sorry, it gets cut off there. But I just wanted to point out, Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bonsell, was allegedly, I'll just say allegedly because I haven't confirmed this, involved with the development and design of the Level 4 bio facility. I'll just say that. In Wuhan, China. If you recall, Moderna had the cure for what may or may not have came out of that laboratory. Whoa. That is that is earth-shattering news, if it can be proven. So, I would like to know more. Really wild stuff. Really, really wild. So, this is from Deborah Burke's actual book says, I had settled on 10 
Oh, this is talking about uh, you know the the maximum gathering capacity when she just out of the blue says ten people. That's where we can. That's how many people you can have if you guys re can remember all the way back to two years ago. She said, I had settled on 10, knowing that even that was too many, but I figured that 10 would at least be palatable for most Americans. High enough to allow for most gatherings of immediate family, but not enough for large dinner parties and critically large weddings, birthday parties, and other mass social events. Similarly, if I push for zero, which was actually what I wanted and was what was required, this would have been interpreted as a lockdown, the perception we were all working so hard to avoid. So they're just working hard to avoid the perception of a lockdown. Well, you didn't trick me. Liberty Lockdown is on the job. Burks divulges her strategy of using federal av uh, advisories to give cover to state governors to impose mandates and restrictions. This is brilliant. This is again from her book. The White House would encourage, in quotes, but the states would or could recommend or, if needed, mandate. In short, we were handing governors and their public health officials a template, a state-level permission slip they could use to enact a specific response that was appropriate for the people under their jurisdiction. The fact that the guidelines would be coming from a Republican White House gave political cover to any Republican governors skeptical of federal overreach. As I've said many times, no matter how you feel about Trump, the fact that he, he was a Republican in office is the only reason red states, the governors in red states, went along with the lockdowns. I promise you it would have been politically impossible otherwise. And I will never forgive him for that because he put up Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci for his entire presidency or the entire you know duration of COVID while he was in power to allow them to propagandize us into this nonsense. It goes on. Then Burks recalls with delight as her strategy led the states to shut down one by one. The recommendation served as the basis for governors to mandate the flattening the curve shutdowns. The White House had handed down guidance, and the governors took that ball and ran with it. With the White House's this is serious message, governors now had permission to mount a proportionate response, and one by one, other states followed suit. California was first, doing so on March 18th. That's where I lived and why I was suicidal for most of that year. <laughs> New York followed on March 20th. Illinois, uh, which had declared its own state of emergency on March 9th, issued shelter-in-place orders on March 21st. Louis Lucy, uh, Jesus. Louisiana did so on the 22nd in relatively short order. By the end of March and the first week of April, there were few holdouts. The circuit breaking, flattening the curve shutdown had begun. She continues, no sooner had we convinced the Trump administration to implement our version of a two-week shutdown than I was trying to figure out how we could extend it. 15 days to slow the spread was a start, but I knew it would be just that. I didn't have the numbers in front of me yet to make the case for extending it longer, but I had two weeks to get them. However hard it had been, to get the 15-day shutdown approved, getting another one would be more difficult by many order orders of magnitude. So this bitch advocates for a two-week shutdown, knowing at its inception it was never going to be two weeks, which is exactly what myself and everybody else knew from the beginning, that they lied to us blatantly. Burks's apparent plan to almost single-handedly destroy the world's primary democratic superpower is going swimmingly until she meets the book's leading antagonist, Dr. Scott Atlas. God bless Scott Atlas, by the way. To Burks's disgust, Atlas takes a strong stand for all the things she loathes most. Things like human rights, democratic governance, and most of all, freedom. <clears throat> Burks lists Atlas's dangerous assertions that, uh, she continues to say, uh, that schools could open everywhere without any precautions, neither masking nor testing, regardless of the status of the spread in the community, that children did not transmit the virus, that children didn't get ill, that there was no risk to anyone young, that long COVID-19 was being overplayed, Heart damage findings were incidental, that comorbidities did not play a critical role in communities, especially among teachers, that merely employing some physical distance overcame the virus's ill effects, that masks were overrated and not needed, that the con uh, coronavirus task force had 
gotten the country into the situation by promoting testing. That testing falsely increased case counts in the United States in comparison with other countries. That targets uh, targeted testing and isolation continued to lock down plain and simple and weren't needed. Hey, sounds like he nailed everything, doesn't it? Uh, we continue that every word of Alice's assertion was obviously 100% true, only made them all the more dangerous. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. And nothing would derail the world's communist destiny faster than letting these self-evident truths spread freely. As Atlas explains, Dr. Fauci held court in the public eye on a daily basis so frequently that many misconstrue his role as being in charge. However, it was really Dr. Burks who articulated task force policy. All the advice from the task force to the states came from Dr. Burks. All written recommendations about their on-the-ground policies were from Dr. Burks. Dr. Burks conducted almost all the visits to states on behalf of the task force. And the reason I wanted to read this to you is because I wanted you guys to be aware that we talk a hell of a lot of smack about Fauci. And this monster has pretty much gotten off without many people even knowing her name. And that should change. Dr. Deborah Burks, you're next up for the trial right after we finish with Fauci. But in researching this topic for over two years, few things have made my hair stand on end more than the clue Burks gives about the man who did appoint her to her role. This is where he's trying to figure out how she got assigned to this position in the White House because he could not figure it out. And he does, and he's going to write an extended piece, so I'll, I'll probably cover that next episode. This man who will be the subject of my next deep dive is a little-known, clean-cut, Mandarin-fluent intelligence operative who arguably played a greater role than even Fauci or Burks in bringing China's totalitarian virus response to the United States, acting as a direct liaison between Chinese scientists and the White House on key items of pseudoscience, including asymptomatic spread, universal masking, and remdesivir. Matthew Pottinger. I am very unfamiliar with Matthew Pottinger, so um, I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger. We will be discussing Mr. Pottinger here in the near future because it seems like he might be the true puppet master behind the entire insane scheme. Shout out to Michael P. Sanger. Uh, brilliant work. He is the author of Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World. And I, I think that uh, I'll be picking that book up. Good stuff. This is just an interesting tidbit for you from Zero Hedge. So, you know. We'll see if it gets proven out. Oftentimes, Zero Hedge is very early, in which case they are labeled conspiracy stuff, but then it ends up being very, very true six months later. So I thought that this was an interesting story. It is sourced from the Epoch Times, so I know that they sometimes get things wrong. So keep that in mind. Take this with a grain of salt. It says, the Federal Bureau of Investigation launched an inquiry into the NIH funding of bat research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Newly released emails show the interest from the top U.S. intelligence agency adds to the interna international scrutiny of the Wuhan facility, which houses one of China's highest level biosecurity labs that has been considered a possible source of the COVID-19 pandemic. In preparation for our calls on Tuesday, Eric has provided uh, responses to your initial question below wrote Ashley Sanders, an investigation officer at the NIH's Division of Program Integrity, in an email dated May 22nd, 2020. So this is like pretty early on, two months into lockdowns, uh, with the subject grant question FBI inquiry and directed the FBI agent David Miller. The email was obtained by Government Transparency Watchdog Judicial Watch through a Freedom of Information Act, which asked for records of, of communications contracts and agreements with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The scope of the inquiry is unclear because the rest of the email correspondence, five pages in total, are entirely redacted. But the name of the email attachment uh, corresponds to the NIH grant understanding the risk of bat coronavirus emergence. The project in question is, handed by, is headed by Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance, which then funnels money to the lab in Wuhan. From 2014 to 2019, the New York uh, nonprofit received six yearly grants totaling $3.7 million from the NIH, or excuse me, NIAID, 
under the NIH to fund the project, which was expected to end in 2026. The FBI inquiry had focused on at least two of the grants in 2014 and 2019, respectively, the email subject line suggests. Hey, now. <clears throat> so if our FBI was investigating it, but we never got any follow-up on that, why? <clears throat> why? Why did, why did we not know why? Why do we have to file, you know, disclosure requests to get this information? It goes on, the 2014 grant aimed to understand what factors increase the risk of the next COV emerging in people by sending COV diversity in a critical zoonotic reservoir, bats in parentheses, at sites of high risk for emergency, uh, emergence, wildlife markets, and emerging disease hotspot, China. According to the project description, specifically, the researchers would assess the coronavirus spillover potential, develop predictive models of bat coronavirus emergence risk, and use virus infection experiments as well as reverse genetics to test the virus's transmission between species. In the project summary for the 2019 grant, EcoHealth stated that they had found that bats in southern China harbor an extraordinarily uh, extraordinary diversity of SARS-CoV-2, and some of those viruses can, quote, infect, humanize, mouse models causing SARS-like illness and available therapies or vaccines, end quote. Recently disclosed documents show that under one grant, the WIV had conducted an, an experiment that resulted in a more potent version of that, that coronavirus. So there you have it. Nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Uh, fuck. So crazy. All right. Let's get out of here on a positive note before we bring in Judge Knapp. I wanted to show that there is some pushback starting from the political establishment whether it's performative or it's sincere, we'll see in time. I mean, there's no way I can possibly know. But I really hope, even though I despise Tom Cotton, I really hope that he's sincere in uh, in asking these questions. So let's hear what he has to say. Boop. Here we go. There's a reason why America's top law firms are already advising their clients to be wary here. Because this is contributing to $5 a gallon gas. And when Republicans take charge in November, I'm going to make sure that the Congress is investigating these matters. This is almost certainly a breach of these firms' fiduciary duties, probably a civil violation of the antitrust laws, exposing them to triple damages, and very possibly a criminal violation. When we went back to the White House in 2024 and the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission is no longer an ideological and partisan weapon against the oil and gas industry, some of these executives could be facing time in federal prison. So okay. I would just encourage Senator, everyone to think carefully. Senator, I'm going to start that over because well, I, I missed the, the context, but the context is he's talking specifically or directly towards BlackRock and their, their ilk in terms of whether or not they are defunding the oil and gas industry. Senator Cotton recently wrote a letter to BlackRock raising questions about the company's ESG activities, and we want to thank him for joining us. And that's where I want to go with this conversation, Senator, because you have been uh, outspoken um, and recently, as we said, just wrote this letter to BlackRock effectively saying that their policies um, and their power and influence over companies around ESG are too much. What, what's the argument you're making? And then, and then we can maybe dig into it. Well, Andrew, what Larry Fink and BlackRock have done in part uh, through collusion with this climate action partnership is essentially create a climate cartel. They're trying to suppress investment in the fossil fuel industry in America. And, and I know you have a lot of CEOs and investors who watch. I would just say this. If you're thinking about joining this climate cartel, you better think again and you better lawyer up. There Boom. I love it. You already heard the rest of it. He threatens to imprison them. That's what I'm talking about, man. You know, I don't like this guy at all, but I like that a lot. I mean, it's just, it's just irrefutable that it's a climate cartel. 
That's what they're doing. They are functioning from a position of pure ideology that carbon is the most dangerous thing and they're going to do whatever it takes to remedy it. And that includes defunding the oil and gas industry. I mean, that's what they say, at least vocally. Then they turn around, uh, total side note, but in their ESG funds, they're allowed to have up to 20% non-ESG companies that they hold. So they can have like all these you know, froofy, hippie companies for 80% of it. And then 20% of it can be the worst polluters on earth. And you could still be in, investing in the ETF that has, that holds those companies. It's a scam. It's a scam. I got to hop on with Ryan Dawson. So I'm going to head out of here, but I do want to say thank you so much. Before we uh, bring in Judge Knapp, I want to thank careerhackers.com. If you're listening to all this and you're saying, holy shit, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You're not wrong, unfortunately. Um, but we will get through. And the best way to get through is for you to go improve your life as soon as possible. And the best way, the free way to do that is to go to careerhackers.com, sign up for the Daily Job Hunt newsletter, find ways to stand out in the crowd. There's going to be more and more job applicants in this, uh, in this economy in the near term. And I think that it would behoove you tremendously to get in front of it, to sign up for the Daily Job Hunt. All you have to do is go over to careerhackers.com Without further ado, let's bring in the legend who has been in Italy for the past month and is sun-kissed to the extreme, Mr. Judge Andrew Napolitano. Enjoy. And we are back with Judge Nat. The Italian stallion is back from the motherland. <laughs> <laughs> As Welcome I was say. saying to you during the break, the sun sticks to my skin, particularly the Italian sun. It's a different sun over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of the sun... Uh, <laughs> We have a, a, a new push, and a lot of people, myself included, have been pontificating on the fact that lockdowns might lead to uh, climate emergency lockdowns. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, what can Joe Biden do with his executive orders? As many people are familiar, uh, yesterday he tweeted out essentially that if Congress won't act, he will uh, to do whatever he has to to address this climate emergency. So I wanted to get your opinion as to what that might consist of and what can he actually do legally. Okay, so there's two types of executive orders. The common executive order is the president directing someone in the executive branch of the government to do their job the way he wants it done. He would send an executive order to the Secretary of Defense saying, send this many troops here and use this type of military hardware. Mm. He'd send an executive order to the Secretary of Health and Human Services saying, forget about uh, Justice Alito's opinion in the Dobbs case. I want you to promulgate a rule saying that if the mother needs an abortion to save her life, that the uh, uh, that would trump lowercase t, of course that would uh, trump state law. So that's the typical type of executive order where he tells somebody who theoretically works for him, the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of HHS and my two hypotheticals, how to do their job. In the latter case, there's very serious constitutional issues because the uh, Justice Alito opinion says that the feds have zero authority to regulate or legislate in the area of abortion. So anything he does would be invalidated by a federal judge. I don't think that's what Biden is talking about. I think he's talking about all of this power that Republican Congresses gave to George W. Bush 
which now resides in the presidency itself. And that is the power to declare a national emergency, which allows him to bypass a lot of legislation. For example, it would allow him to take federal funds and purchase things without the bidding process. It would allow him to tell certain businesses, uh, we need you to make air conditioners rather than automobiles because we have to filter the air. Hmm. I believe that those are equally unconstitutional, but they are in the law. Now, an emergency, uh, Clint, is defined as a state of affairs so overwhelming that the ordinary laws don't work. You know, it's 95 degrees here in New Jersey. I don't know what a law could do to possibly <laughs> lessen that temperature. So I don't think he has a basis to declare an emergency, but that's probably what he will try to do. He doesn't care. And in fairness to him, President Trump, President Obama, President George W. Bush, even President Reagan were the same. He doesn't care if this is lawful or constitutional. He's not doing it to bring about a change in the environment or in the laws. He's doing it to please his base. In Biden's case, the base is so dwindling and so small, he'll do almost anything to expand that base. If it's invalidated by a judge, he'll say, look, I did everything I could. Some mm -hmm. black-robed, uh, unaccountable judge appointed by Trump invalidated this. Don't blame me. And that gins up the base. They all do that. Well, that's that's certainly true. So, I, I mean, natural follow-up. Do you think that there's the potential under this alleged state of emergency that they actually... I, I, let me be a little bit of an optimist. I don't think in red states this would fly because I don't think you have nearly enough people that fear the the climate change fear-mongering adequately to accept it. But I could see California, New York, a handful of others that I think it's feasible that they could try to do lockdowns based off of a climate emergency. Is Am I totally tinfoil hatting on this? No, I don't think you are, because you have governors, California, New Jersey, and New York, who are ardent leftists, who love to please the base, who love to exercise dictatorial uh, power. However, the last time they had the lockdown, they at least had Fauci and the CDC and a majority of the medical community uh, supporting them. There'd be no uh, support whatsoever for the government to say you can't go outside your house and you can't go to work because the climate is uh, uh, is too bad. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I would think that that would be uh, invalidated in any state, even even here in okay. New Jersey. Well, that's a relief. Uh, I mean, I, my, my concern is that they, I mean, it seems as if they're trying it kind of a, a top-down and a bottom-up approach where basically they wanted to make it so that, you know, you have carbon taxes and things of that nature where they're, they're trying to make it um, more cost prohibitive, but they're also trying to, from the top down, have regulations that make this this plan come to pass or this this new worldview, this Green New Deal type mentality. Well, a carbon, ta a carbon tax would require legislative action at both the state uh, and the federal level. And if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said a lockdown, uh, unconstitutional as it is, would require legislative action. We all know that no legislature, state or federal, at any time anywhere in the United States of America ordered a lockdown because they all know they'd be voted out of office if they did it. All those lockdowns uh, were ordered uh, by governors, many of whom are still in office. I mean, Phil Murphy 
here in New Jersey lost his dream of running for president, but he did get reelected by very, very narrow uh, numbers, uh, largely because he had upset so many people uh, over the lockdowns. I mean, he, he banned people from going to mass uh, on Sunday, uh, as well as banned you from uh, going to work. Yeah. So there are political ramifications to that. But while they're still in office, they're tyrants. And no. the American public are, are sheep. And when they're afraid, they will opt for safety. The illusion of safety, as we know from Ovaldi, the government can't keep you safe. It's just a big joke that the government can keep you uh, safe. But they yeah. would prefer the illusion of safety to the certainty of liberty. Mm -hmm. You and I know each other well. Who in their <laughs> right mind would prefer the illusion of safety <laughs> to the reality of liberty? But most people, when they're afraid, that's what they'll do. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, tragically correct, unfortunately. Uh, but the the uh, the overarching point I was trying to get to was it seems that now the bottom-up approach is they're trying to make it so cost-prohibitive to use fuel and gas that that people opt not to say drive to work or live <laughs> like that. It does. It does seem as if, cause like uh, you had, you had uh Buttigieg uh, who's like secretary of transportation or whatever. He came out yesterday and he, and he, he's lamenting the fact he's like, I'm really stunned that people are, are struggling so hard to accept this new reality where you go get an electric car and you do as we say. And like, even with all of our best laid plans to increase the price of, of fuel, you guys are still holding on to your fuel-based cars. I can't believe it. And it, it just yeah. really, it was like a window into the the incredible narcissism and kind of a totalitarian mindset that these people have. I don't know if you have Agreed. any comments on that, but it's just Agreed, incredible. Clint. It is narcissism and it is a totalitarian uh, mindset and it's extremely uh, dangerous. Yeah, uh, It's dangerous for two reasons. One is Biden is being tugged to the left because without the lefties in his party, he's a minority party. And it's dangerous because he's out of it half the time and somebody else is really uh, running the government and making these uh, making these decisions. I, I mean, who even knows if he's aware of what uh, Buttigieg uh, just said? Yeah. Uh, but we have, a, we have a, a populace that is willing to be told what to do, not everywhere. Not in all the red states. But the good thing about this is the federal government lacks the assets to enforce all of its draconian measures without conscripting the states. And states like Florida, Texas, Montana, Oklahoma, Missouri, they won't give the feds a hand at all. In fact, they'll make it nearly impossible for the feds to try and uh, enforce these things. I think if I just heard you correctly, you're saying, if you value liberty, get to a red state, folks. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I really said the other day, and I've said this before, but for some reason it uh, took wings the other day, that I don't think the U.S. is going to exist much longer. I, do I too, think man. pretty soon the cash will be valueless. The rules will be so onerous. Nobody will want to work for it. Their, their checks will bounce and it will collapse and will break off into a dozen smaller republics. And if you love freedom, you're going to want to be in New Hampshire or Florida or Texas. You're not going to want to be, if you, if you love being taken care of by the government, you're going to want to be in New Jersey or New York or California. Yeah, but well, you'll, have, you'll have a choice. Just sell your real estate while the price is high 
before exactly. it's a fire sale. Bingo. I've been saying the same thing, man. If you if you're sitting on a half a million in equity in California, I don't know what you're thinking other than like right. Like stop waiting, maybe. Um, so right. I wanted to I wanted to ask you how how is it that the president of the United States and he did he actually tweeted this out. I mean, it wasn't him, obviously, but he said, and I quote, if Congress refuses to act, I will. And and this is on the climate emergency nonsense, but uh, how is it that people don't hear that as a dictator attempting to abol abolish okay, the republic? Okay, so that, that line, if Congress refuses to act, I will, add the following. I have a telephone and a pen. That is from his former boss, Barack Obama. Mm. And in that respect, Obama did have what's called prosecutorial discretion. The issue was, should dreamers... Uh, immigrants who came here as babies and are fully Americanized be prosecuted for being illegally present. The president of the United States and the president of the United States alone does have the authority to say no. Hmm. So as, as dictatorial as that sounds, it was legally correct when Obama said that. But for Biden to use that in a different area where he doesn't have prosecutorial discretion, Right. where it has to do with spending money that he can't spend, only Congress can, or what exactly. has to do with regulations uh, governing polluting in, in the atmosphere, which we know the EPA can't regulate, thanks be to God, because Congress failed to give them specific enough authority. Yep. His uh, executive orders will be toothless. They will only please the left. They won't change the law, and they won't cause any money to be spent, other than these discretionary slush funds that he has. It's probably a couple of billion in them. There's no more uh, than that, that, uh, that he can spend almost any way he wants. Even though the Constitution says only Congress can spend money. And even though the Constitution says no money shall be spent, but that which is written down in a public journal. President can spend money without us even knowing about it. Hmm, interesting. Forget um, it. So to uphold the Constitution, they don't care about the Constitution. <laughs> no, doesn't seem as if they have for a long time. What concerns me most is that the American people don't seem to uh, demand that they honor it, and I think that's that's the trend line that concerns Agreed. me. But this Agreed is uh, with you, my dear friend. The American yeah. people don't seem uh, to care. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable that that definitely is one of the biggest paradigm shifts that I've witnessed over my, uh, you know, nearly 40 years on this planet. It's just, they just don't, they don't view it the same way as they once did. Anyways, this is a little off the, the beaten path here, but uh, I, I would feel remiss not to bring it up. Uh, there was video released yesterday that shows one of the Uvalde cops, as everybody knows, there was, uh, I think, 19 children and two adults that were murdered in the shooting. And one of the, one of the police that was on scene, he had received a phone call from his wife who had been shot, who was lying there bleeding. And she is begging her husband to come in and rescue her. He takes like two steps, his, I don't know, his, his higher up uh, officer in front of him just puts a short, like a hand around his shoulder essentially. And that is enough to stop him. And, and I, I, I just, for the life of me, I can't wrap my head around honoring the orders of your higher up in a police force over the literal pleas of your wife to come and rescue her and you are armed and you have 400 cops at your backside and you do nothing it doesn't make any sense to me how is this possible well 
It shouldn't be possible. The first thing that these cops learn the first day of every police academy is it is unlawful to obey an unlawful order. Hmm. It is clearly unlawful for a sergeant to prevent a corporal. I don't know what their ranks are, but I'm just sure. choosing a, a superior to prevent an inferior from uh, saving the life of his wife. Um, it's absolutely outrageous that that video has gone viral. The video itself is not particularly dramatic. What is dramatic is that it's just this tap and it's enough to stop him. He should have shoved that guy away, ran into the classroom, pulled his gun and blown the brains out of that uh, murderer. He might have saved some lives. A lot of those people bled to death because the police didn't get there uh, in time. Yeah, for an now hour. I'm really gonna, now I'm really going to give you some heartburn. The, the surviving uh, parents have no legal recourse, none. You cannot sue in America the police for failure to protect you. The Supreme Court could not be clearer. It's a horrible case. It's big government protecting itself. But under what's known as the DeShaney Doctrine, D-E-S-H-A-N-E-Y, which is just the name of the case, DeShaney was a young boy who was savagely beaten by his father for months to the point where he got brain damage and mm. social services knew about it and did nothing about it. And then the, the mother sued social services for failing to stop the father. And the Supreme Court said the government has no obligation to interfere with crime. There's only two things the government has to protect people. It's confined and itself. No surprise. Mm. So the police could literally, literally, observe a bank robbery, a rape, or a murder, and do nothing, and there'd be no recourse against them. But on the other hand, Uvalde shatters the progressive notion that the police are the only authorities that should be trusted with force because they can protect us. 376 armed cops there for two hours before anybody took this monster down. Unbelievable. I, I can't imagine this happening in any country in the world, civilized or uncivilized. Well, one of the officers had his his child in one of the rooms. The other officer had his wife in the room. Neither, neither breach. It just, Correct. it's like Correct. to have there a, is a tape. There is a tape of a mother. Yeah, oh, I know. Forcing An un, unarmed woman. They, they handcuffed her. She found a cop she knew. She said, unhandcuff me. I would love this woman. I would love to meet her. The Me other too. cop unhandcuffed her. She ran in there, took her kid out, and saved the kid's life. I wish that cop who stopped with the touch of a of a shoulder. I wish he had one percent of the courage of that woman that ran through the cops and saved her kid's life. Exactly. Well, you have an unarmed mother who fights off handcuffs to go get her two kids out, and you have a, a husband and a father who both are armed and do nothing. It it. Right. For me, it really goes into the psychology of someone who operates within the government enforcement apparatus. The fact that they would take orders and honor that duty over the duty to their own family, it's Agreed. just atrocious. Agreed. Atrocious. Agreed. Ah, man. Uh, but, but we must make the most of this. We must make the country realize my column this week is called, you know, why do we keep a government that fails us? Or at least that's the working title. Some of the pu mm. publishers, as they are allowed to, change the title. <laughs> Why do we keep a government? I mean, let's suppose, I don't know how much time we have, but let's suppose that Ovaldi had no police department. They might as well have had no police department. Yeah, exactly. But let's suppose in reality they had none. And a group of parents got together and hired private police to protect their kids. 
would we even be having this conversation? Mm. Of course not. The private police would have blown this guy away. And if for some reason they missed, they'd be fired and they'd be sued. The government yeah. can't be fired and it can't be sued. What yeah. would Jefferson have said about that? It's time to alter or abolish the government. Bingo. I love it. Well, that's a perfect way to end it. Everybody go check out Judging Freedom. Uh, Judge Edgerton Politano had on uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor just two days ago, and it was an amazing episode. I hope everyone will go check it out. Thank you we so much just, for joining uh, us. We once just again. taped Scott Ritter, who was on fire, Woo! so you'll you'll be able to see both. Oh, that's going to be amazing. Thank you again. I'm, I hope the vacation recharged you. I cannot wait to keep doing these uh, these Thursdays with you. It's a blast. Thank you for joining God me. God bless you. All the best, Clint. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Obviously, uh, the sun's gone down. I love doing this. It, it, the time flies when you're having fun, and I have fun breaking this stuff down for you guys every time I do it. This next month is going to be absolutely insane. Let me tell you the, the tentative lineup. I'm still working on two of these five guests, but my God, my God, if it happens, it's going to be the craziest month in history. First up, I hope. I, he's already said that he's down. We just haven't set a date yet. But in August, Sticks and Hammer, six and six, or Six Hex and Hammer, I think is how you pronounce it, 666. One of my favorite YouTubers. This dude is absolutely brilliant. It's going to be amazing to have him on. Next up, Dave fucking Smith. My guy. My hero. He'll be back. Uh, Who's next after that? Oh, maybe you've heard of him. Alex fucking Stein, huh, bruh? Alex Stein's going to come on, which, by the way, I may or may not be doing some fun things with Alex this weekend, which you will hear about on my Twitter feed. Make sure you go to at Liberty Lockpod to follow me so you can see what we're up to. It's going to be insane if uh, if we do what I think we're going to do. Uh, who else? Oh, and I'm also trying once again, pleading, begging. I know he's an extremely bus busy guy because he just launched the Ripaverse, but I am trying my damnedest to get Eric July on. We'll see if he confirms. My hope is that I have him on in August. And then last, but certainly not least, one of my favorite podcasters of all time, the host of No Agenda, Mr. Adam Curry. I am trying to get those five lined up for August. If you love this show, and why wouldn't you? If you get to talk to people like that, I love this show because I get to talk to people like that. Go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a supporting member of the show. Five bucks a month. You can just help buoy me. You can help uh, increase the, the revenue for this show so that I can go out and advertise it better and get more and more listeners. We are already pushing about 10,000 listeners per episode, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I couldn't have done it without you guys. Again, libertylockdown.locals.com. I will catch you next time. We're out. Oh, last but not least, like, comment, share, subscribe. Do the whole thing. Hit the bell. Bing, bing, boom, boom. We're out. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, so don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feminine. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. 
Peter Quinones Invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem Now I stand with the people Dave showed the way But I am unequal Lions of Liberty Now hear me roar Beat running up But I got a bit more Robbie the fire Always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich Now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick But you're welcome to quit I went over BLM With the fire I spit Friends against government Just call us fags Copy the Cairo Put mummies in the bag Liable opinions Get thrown on the ground Silky's Mouton Was the only sound Getting so hot Must be air July Screaming in the mic I ripped a 59 Miles to ratio That black guns matter Now all these lefties Got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war But we're ready You know I be bopping And rock steady Liberty lockdown Please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone But yeah it's on hold Where did it come from And where did it go It requires a fight Not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king Get them off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought You've always got a home The virus is scared of Will come and it'll go The government knows this don't get treated like a hoe